And you can start with your Bibles open. Joshua chapter 1. And we'll make our way through these passages together. Nancy is my wife. And she is a special education teacher. And as a special education teacher, she is frequently called on to try to give a diagnosis to a disability, a learning disability. For the past 27 years, I have given her endless opportunity to sharpen her skills. And early on in our marriage, she diagnosed me with CNFI. Can not fix it. She learned early on that if she had a project that needed to be fixed and it required anything more than a hammer, then she was going to need to call someone else to help her out. And despite her accurate diagnosis, I continue to think I can take on certain projects. And I always start this way. Oh, this will be a simple project. You ever hear hear that, wives? And it just, you know, it blows up into something, you know, much bigger than anybody had anticipated. And several years ago, I was trying to put up a fence, a very simple project, because it was just down one side of my house. No gate, didn't have to turn. And the greatest thing about it was at Lowe's, they gave you the fence already put together. So all you had to do is put posts in the ground, and then they gave you this eight-foot panel all put together, and you just tack them up on the post, bingo, you got an instant fence. And I thought, well, I mean, how hard can this be? It's just projects made for people like me. So I put in nine posts along one side of my yard. I've got a plumb line, so I feel relatively confident that they're straight, And I just take this one eight-foot panel, I I sort of lean up against it, tack it in on each side, and I stand back, it looks good, I measure it, and then I realize that on the end post, the one I'm going to have to tack the next board up next to is just a quarter of an inch off. And I go, yes! Just a quarter of an inch. That's no big deal. I was stunned that I got anything near just a quarter of an inch off. So I'm just standing up in my backyard, dancing around, going, this is awesome. This is easy. And I get the next panel, and I put it up, and I have to just, just a quarter of an inch, sort of jimmy it up a little bit, and I tack them up, and then I realize that now at the end of this panel... It's not a quarter of an inch off. It's four inches off. And I thought, okay, this is my second of eight panels. And I did a little calculation and figured that by by my eighth panel, my fence would be 30 feet in the air. So so not real helpful for what I was trying to build. And, And you know what I had to do? I had to go back to the first panel. And that panel couldn't even be a quarter of an inch off. Because a quarter of an inch off in the foundation, if you extend that over time, suddenly the chasm gets great. And what you think 
is no big deal in the beginning becomes a huge deal eight panels later or a few years later. That true story about my fence was the story I opened this Founders Day service with six years ago. So some of you have had the privilege of hearing it now six times. You could say it probably better than I could. And every year I come back to this same sermon and I repeat the same sermon because we need to remember what our foundation is. And probably every ten-year-old here knows this principle. If you're just a little bit off now, when you're 20, you might be a long way off. So your parents have looked at you, whether you're 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and they're, they're hammering you on some little small thing, and you think, just get out of my space. This is not a big deal. It's just a quarter-inch problem. And your parents say, oh, it's just a little thing now. But when you're 20... It could be huge. And your parents, I hope, try to work that quarter of inch out right now, because it's a lot easier to work that out than it is to work out a mile when you're 20 years old. And so here we are, we're going back to our foundation at Christ Community Church, trying to remember what God has started here and what He wants us to hold to Remembering is important. In Joshua chapter 4, one of the passages we read, Joshua is leading the people across the Jordan River, and as they get all the way across, then he says, one person from each tribe, the twelve tribes, send one person back, go right to the center of the riverbed, pick up a stone, and bring it over here to this side, and we'll set up sort of a monument. And so what happens is that people in another generation come by this way and they say, and you know, these 12 stones, they they couldn't have gotten here all by themselves. What happened? And Joshua says this, you tell them this, that Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. And God did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. So remembering is important. Every year that goes by, remembering is more and more important because it's easier to just get yourself separated off. And if we're not careful, we can get a long way away from our foundation. The three foundational points that I made six years ago and every year since that I want to make today is this. The the foundation consists of at least these things, God's chosen leadership, God's word, and courage. God's chosen leadership, God's word, and courage. Those are the three things I want to highlight this morning. God is obviously not limited to how he might establish his name. I mean, he's he has an unlimited ability to do whatever he wants to do, but you see in the Bible that his primary tactic is beginning with godly leadership. You see this right away in the garden. Remember, Adam was given responsibility to be the leader. And we see this in Genesis chapter 3 at the fall. 
Adam and Eve, they first, they try to hide from each other. And then they hide from God. And God comes walking in the garden. And what's the first thing that God says? Man. Man. Adam. Where are you? I gave you the leadership to stand in a very strong position. And man, what happened to you? How is it that you stood by and you let evil come in to not just your your own family, but the whole family that now is going to project out? Man, you you you've blown it here right at this point of leadership. Man, Adam, where were you for your wife? At her point of need, why didn't you come in and see, this is not right. And why didn't you take out a sword and just chop off the snake of the head right then in that garden? Why did it have to happen in the Garden of Gethsemane? When another Adam, a second Adam, took his sword out. Men, where are you? You are given leadership. And one of the greatest failures in this passage in Genesis is the failure of leadership. Not the failure of Eve, but the failure of leadership. And God says that, man, where are you? But despite this falling, God continues to use leadership as a way to move his kingdom forward. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, James, Peter, Paul, Augustine, Edwards, Calvin, Wesley. You can just name one right after another. Ravi Zacharias makes this observation about godly leadership. He says this, there are no bona fide mass movements. It just looks that way. At the center of the column is a man or a woman who knows their God and where their God is going. There is no abstract movement that is moving ahead. There are individuals who are moving ahead, and therefore the cause of Christ is going forward. At the center of the column is a man or a woman who knows their God and where their God is going. The reason this particular leadership characteristic is important is these past six years have gone by quickly. And one day I will give this sermon for the last time. I don't think it's going to be this year, but I'm not God. And it will be your responsibility, and most of you will be, still be here when that happens, to replace me. To put a godly man behind this pulpit who every week will open up this word and he will remind you of what God has said. And so it's so critical that we understand what your role is because you need to know it so when you go looking for somebody, when you're looking for leadership, you know exactly the kind of leader that you're looking for. We're looking for somebody who's got God at the center of their column. 
He's a man about God. He's a man for God. He's a man following after God. Because that's what we want to be following after ourselves. Now there's a couple of characteristics I want to point out to you here from the text in Joshua 1.1 of what this leader is going to look like. First, his primary focus is going to be on God. Joshua 1.1, the Lord spoke to Joshua. It's the leader's primary concern to be listening to God. Now that may seem painfully obvious. But you need to be reminded of this. It's not his primary concern to listen to you. His primary concern is to listen to God. We do not want someone up here being swayed by whatever the congregation happens to be at any particular point. We want our needle right north. We never want it to shift. This is going to shift. The world, society is going to shift. So we need someone up here who primarily understands his role is to be listening to God. How would you like to be Joshua, the person who gets to follow Moses? I mean, who would really like to volunteer for that assignment? Here's what it says at the end of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 34. This is a description that somebody writes in after Moses is dead. No prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the side of Israel. Okay, Joshua, you're going to follow that. Oh, can we get somebody else in between that looks really sorry so I can look better, you know, when I come in? That's what I would want. But here's the thing Joshua, I believe, understood. He wasn't following Moses. He was following God. And God hadn't died. God hadn't gone away. God hadn't sort of used up his resources on the things that he'd done. He's following after God. And every man of God must be following after God. I understand in the timeline, one person follows after another. But we're not following men here at Christ Community Church. You're not following a man here at Christ Community Church. You and I are following after God. And we're following after God alone. One of the reasons that's important is because it's so easy to sort of live in the superficial, sort of shallow end of Christianity. David Wells has written a number of books, and his most recent one is called The Courage to be Protestant. And he has in a chapter here titled Christianity for Sale. And this just hurt my heart, even though I knew it was true, this little passage that I want to read to you. It is Easter morning, 2006, and there lurking in the shadows is a figure rarely seen in the church. It's Superman. Yes, Superman. He who leaps tall buildings in a single bound as he pursues evildoers. No, wait a minute, it's not him. Actually, it's the senior pastor. The senior pastor, all decked out as Superman, ready to communicate the gospel to a new generation. 
Superman, you see, is a Christ figure who is particularly adapted to conveying the Christian message to generations raised on Sesame Street, cartoons, superheroes. So on this day, the pastor was poised to begin his instruction in a new series on how to leap over discouragement, overcome doubts, defeat odds, and rise from the ashes as Superman had on many occasions. Is this an antidote plucked from an obscure part of evangelical, the evangelical vineyard in America? Did it really happen? Is it so bizarre as to be unrepresentative? No, this incident actually happened in a church that received an award for Church of the Year. Besides this co-opting of showbiz, this transformation of Christianity into entertainment is rapidly becoming the norm, not the exceptions. Pastors are straining to outdo each other and becoming as chic and slick as any show in Las Vegas. The leadership at Christ Community Church cannot afford to be distracted by novelty. We're not trying to make something novel happen here. That is not our goal. We're not trying to market ourselves to the world. That is not the goal of the church, to try to market itself to the world. What we're trying to do is we're trying to give glory to God Almighty. That's what we're trying to do. We are trying to die to ourselves and die to much of what's in the world and try to boast in the cross and boast in the cross alone. And as Jude says, we are exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. I want to tell you that is not an easy task. There is always pressure for novelty. And you should pray for your leaders, specifically your elders, that they would be men who would stand up and stand for the word of God alone against perhaps even your own pressure. Second characteristic of a leader is that he must be a servant. Moses was called a servant. Joshua called a servant. Peter, James. In the New Testament, the word leader is used less than ten times. The word servant is used over a thousand times. Jesus says this, Mark 10:45, "The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." You remember back in Corinth, I think we talked about this maybe just a couple of weeks ago, there were some divisions in Corinth, and it was a division in leadership. Who's following after which great, you know, apostle? I follow Apollos, I follow Peter, I follow Paul. And, and quickly there became this divisive nature with inside the church. And Paul sort of clams the lid down on it and says this in 1 Corinthians 4. Let men regard us in this manner. We are servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery. You know that word servant? 
That, that, that's, that word means under oarsman. Meaning, you've seen this in some old movie, there's a ship, and the way it propels itself, especially if it's not windy, is everybody puts out an oar in one of those little portals down near the water level, and these people just, they're just oaring away. Whatever the captain says, all your job is just to just keep running that oar. That's what Peter is. That's what Paul is. That's what Joshua is. That's what Moses is. They're just simply the people at the very bottom of the ship just manning an oar. They're not, they're not setting the course. God's setting the course. We are simply servants. We're simply conduits for the grace of God. When, when Justin and I sat down and we went through John, I mean, it was so rewarding to know you had some little tiny part of that. But all I was was a hose. I'm connected to what is life-giving. And what's life-giving through the Gospel of John just is flowing through me. And it only has value when it gets out on this other end towards somebody else. I'm not giving it value. It has value in and of itself. And it's just simply going through me to another person. We're just servants. John Wesley, five foot two, preached over... 40,000 sermons. It's quite daunting as a pastor. He was 83 and he got angry at his doctor because his doctor would not let him preach more than 14 times in one week. He wrote this in his journal at 86. Laziness is slowly creeping in. There is an increasing tendency to stay in bed after 5.30 in the morning. (laughs) On his statue, he has a statue, it says this at the bottom. Reader, if you feel constrained to praise the instrument, don't. Give God the glory. The, The leader is just an instrument. God deserves the glory for anything that you see that's great. In any given leader. So we're a church built on Christ. We're not built on a popular pastor. We're not built on a group of elders. We're not built on a figure in church history. We're not built on the founders of this church. We're not built on an agenda. We're built on Christ. Secondly, God's word. When you build a fence, you have a plumb line, and it becomes sort of your reference point. It's this straight line that you know is straight, no matter how everything else looks. It's called a plumb line. And sometimes you've heard the word canon of Scripture. And what that means is it's a straight rod. It's a plumb line. In other words, all of human history, all of what you think, all of what you see... 
It can be very crooked or very straight, but you don't know what it is until you get it up against the one thing that stays straight for all of eternity, and that's God's Word. So He's provided a plumb line, and we have to bounce up against that and say, well, am I thinking right? Am I moving in the right direction? And am I doing that according to what God has to say? And in Joshua, you'll notice two things. There's a verbal exhortation to follow the Word of God, and then there's this visual exhortation. So God's going to say something to Joshua, and then He's going to show something to Joshua. Joshua 1, 7 and 8. He says this, Be strong and courageous, and be careful to do all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Don't let the book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. Joshua, you're going to get into this new land. There's going to be all kinds of deception. There's going to be all kinds of distraction. There's going to be all kinds of delights. And it can get very confusing. You get down in this world and it gets very foggy and it gets very difficult to understand. What is, now, what is the right way to go? How would I know which way to go? And God is telling Joshua and He's telling us, you keep your eyes on the Word. If you learn to fly a plane, you begin by getting what's called a visual flight rating. That people have different names for it. In other words, when you're learning to fly a plane, they'll let you fly the plane when you can see the horizon, when you can see lights, when you have some point of reference other than yourself. And so if it gets real foggy or if it's particularly cloudy or anything like that, they don't let you fly the plane. You can only fly when you have some visual orientation to your world. And another rating... A more difficult rating is called instrument flight rating. That means you can fly in a fog, or you can fly in a haze, or you can fly in the clouds. I mean, when you get into a a fog or a cloud as a pilot, you lose complete orientation. You, You get into this, and you don't know if you're upside down. You don't know if you're flying straight out of the cloud or you're, you're turning down into the ground. And some pilots have turned their planes down into the ground thinking they were climbing. Because they've lost reference visually and they're supposed to have an instrument rating so that when your mind and your eyes are playing tricks on you, you look at the instruments and you say, no matter what it is I see out my window, I'm trusting my instruments. I'm keeping my plane according to the instruments. It's, it's confusing. I don't necessarily think this is right, but I'm trusting the instruments. And most pilots will say it's very difficult for a pilot to really train himself to simply trust the instruments and not trust his own instincts. It's very difficult for you and I not to trust our instincts. What does my heart tell me? I don't really want to... Know what your heart tells you. What I want to know is what God says. That's what's most important. Because your inclination 
can be dead wrong and can fly you right into the ground. But God has given us an instrument in His Word that we can always trust. How should I live my life? What should I be doing? Different areas that you find yourself buried in God's Word. If you're willing to read it, you can find out how to live your life according to His Word. But people lose sight of the instrument, no matter what kind of exhortation Joshua gets. We've been reading about it in Jeremiah. Several hundred years later, these haunting words, now you read back to Joshua from Jeremiah this. When you tell these people about the day of disaster, and they ask you, why has the Lord decreed such a great disaster against us? What wrong have we done? What sin have we committed against the Lord? Then you say to them, you abandoned me. You did not keep my word. So, so many of the issues that a pastor deals with in the lives of his congregation really have to deal with I'm just not following after the word. Thankfully, it's the word that brings life to people, even people who have failed. Ezekiel chapter 37. Remember, Ezekiel goes out to this valley of dry bones, and he doesn't understand what's going to happen, and God says this, or the Lord asks Ezekiel, Ezekiel, can these bones live? Ezekiel gives a great answer. God, only you know. <laughs> My orientation says no. But you know, who knows? You might, you might be up to something I couldn't even anticipate. And God says this. Say to them, say to these bones, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord and live. A year ago, Justin was a bunch of of dry bones. And I mean that as nice as I can say it, Justin. And if somebody had intersected his life and asked, can this guy really live? I bet some people would have said, it doesn't look like it. It's not real promising. You don't have much to work with here, Lord. He doesn't need anything to work with. He can create something out of nothing. So dry bones are fine. And he comes in and he creates life out of death. And it's his word that does it. So when we get together here on Sunday mornings, we're not here to hear the words of a priest or a pastor. We're not here to listen to cut and paste stories from the internet. We're not here to get movie clips from Hollywood. We are here to hear God's Word. That's what we want. That's the plumb line. That's what we need to follow against. Joshua chapter 3 gives the visual illustration. You know, the, 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 the Joshua says, okay, get the Levitical priests out. They're going to carry the ark. And they're going to be a thousand yards out front. And you need to follow after that group. What's, what's in the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments. Pro- probably manna, 
Moses' rod, but at least we know the Ten Commandments, they're in there. We're going to be following after God's Word. And notice the distance, a thousand yards away. That's three football fields. Why do you have to get so far away? Well, Joshua tells us, number one, you don't know where you're going. You've never been this way before. We don't want to orient your new life with Christ after what you've been previously thinking. So we need to give the Word of God a big lead on us. That it's going to direct our paths. And secondly, we don't want to get too close because then people might start following us. And we want everything to work towards pointing people just to the Word of God alone. So in Joshua, we have this leader who's a great leader. And he's a servant leader, and he understands the value of the Word of God. And then you get a sense in this first chapter of the difficulty of what he's going to face because of the many times, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. I mean, when, when you meet God and the first thing He says is be strong and courageous, you've got some tough duty ahead of you. He's going to have to spread out into this wicked land. And even though He fights against it, He can't afford for Himself to become like the world that He's going to try to inhabit. Jesus in Matthew 16 has a similar call for the church. It's not just a call for Joshua. They have this little conversation at Caesarea Philippi, a a city full of idols. And Jesus says, you know, who do people say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, okay, right. Now that you know that, now that you've got that locked down, then what am I going to ask you to do, Peter and disciples? Where am I going to ask you to go plant yourself? On an island? No. I'm going to ask you, now that you understand that I am the Christ, I'm going to ask you to do something just like I asked Joshua. I want you to go to the very darkest places across the globe and I want you to find very dark, dead places and people and I want you to go plant yourself right next to those people and those places. That's what I want you to do. You see, the call for Joshua to be strong and courageous is what you and I need to hear. Be strong, Christ Community Church. Be courageous. Be willing to be asked as a couple or as an individual or as a high school student or as a college student or as the pastor to go intentionally put yourself in the blackest holes. Because you're holding out the word of light. You're you're planting yourself in those places. People are going to see the gospel. But it's going to take courage. The, the, The easiest thing for every person in every church to do is just to become insular. The only people who can sort of get into my world and get into the church are only the people of the light. We can't have any darkness in here. 
And, and Christ is coming in to try to explode that off. Not just into Israel, but all over the planet. He wants his people planted. And he tells you exactly where he wants you planted. Right at the gates of hell. That's where he wants you to go. So if you're saying, boy, that, that's a tough person. That's a tough place. Then you can be sure that God's saying, that's, that's right. That's where I want you to go. You and I don't stand here alone. Heard a quote this week that went something like this. The Christians today are just very small people who the reason they only see from a great, to, uh, to a great distance is because they stand on the shoulders of giants. People who have taken their stand for the gospel. And now we stand on top of this great church that has gone before us for the last 2,000 years. And I'm encouraged by people who have taken a stand, even failed. It encourages me as a pastor and as a sinner. I read this recently in a Christian history magazine on China about a guy named Wang Mingdao. He was born in 1900 and died in 1999. It says this about him. When the communists came and began to dismantle the church in China in 1949, Mingdao said this, We are ready to pay any price to preserve the word of God. Don't give way. Don't compromise. For such nonconformity, Wang, his wife, and other young Christians from his church. The pastor, his wife, and other young Christians from this church were taken at gunpoint and put into prison. After being confined in prison for a period of time, Wang cracked. He signed a statement confessing that he was a criminal. And he was released. You you feel the pressure of that? I mean, if you and your wife and your closest friends are now just locked up and pushed away, And if all you have to do is just sign a statement saying I was wrong. Mingdao felt that he had betrayed Christ like Peter. He grieved bitterly. He eventually revoked his previous confession as a forced lie. And for this he was imprisoned and tortured repeatedly for 22 years. He was released in 1979, old, toothless, and nearly blind. He lived in Shanghai with his wife and son and regularly held meetings with Christians in their small apartment until he died in July of 28 of 1991. He is widely recognized as one of the most influential and respected Chinese Christian leaders of the 20th century.
I, I hope we're building up people like that. Even if you crack, like Peter, like Mindau, like Paul Phillips, you're willing to say, no, that, I, got, I got, I lost sight of the instrumentation. I, I looked around in this fog and I, I got oriented towards myself. And no, I'm going back to this way. Even if it cost me 22 years in prison, my sight, my hearing, my teeth, my life. We at Christ Community Church want to be building men and women just like that. And the way it begins is by boasting in the cross, by trusting in the word, and having courage then to follow that word out. Probably in nearly the same spot six years ago, with some skepticism, Kenny Smith sat on the aisle. And I didn't know Kenny. He just sat there the whole time with his arms crossed. Which is a little intimidating if you're preaching. And so afterwards, he was one of the first ones to come up and says, Hey, that sounds good. But we'll see if in a few years you're still doing the same thing. We're still doing it. Hey, the church doesn't have a good track record. Not just Christ's community. Just look across the church Easily susceptible to lose its foundation. We must remember. Remember the word of God. Nothing else matters. Let's pray together. Lord, we are... To say thankful is just not the right kind of weight to the way we feel about you and what you've done and your word. We lift our hands, we lift our hearts to you. We, we do all that we are doing for your glory and honor. I pray for this church, Lord. If this is the last day for me or it's 20 years from now, I pray in 50 years and 100 years, if you, Terry, that this church would be saying the same thing. And people who are nothing more than dry bones would come to life because of your word. Lord, we're thankful for the many resources you've given to Christ Community Church and people and talent in monetary wealth. I pray that all these things are swept together for the propelling of the kingdom of God into the very darkest corners of this planet. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.